In my Bible, I've opened to Mark chapter 10. I would like to ask you to join me there. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to begin this morning. Good to have everybody here. Uh, we are significantly diminished in number this morning. We have quite a number of the of our regular membership who are either out of town or not feeling well. Um, I know at least one of our families has returned to uh, cautious quarantining with the, the ramp up in, in virus cases here in this state. Um, and perhaps a couple of others have decided to do that this morning. But we've got a number of people to reach out to and make sure everything's going okay for them. But we are thankful for the presence of our visitors uh, as well. Not just that you would help pad out the pews a little bit, but that we get to meet you uh, and get to know perhaps a little bit more about you if you have the time uh, and get to study together now this morning. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover for the last time uh, in anticipation, of course, of, of being the Passover lamb himself and the greatest realization of, of that that's uh, suppers and that lamb's symbolism and purpose. And as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem for that celebration, he meets a man who runs to him, kneels before him and asks the greatest question a man can ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps you've heard this point before, perhaps you haven't. Um, being 21st century Americans instead of 1st century Jews, it might be difficult for us to appreciate just how odd it was for this man to address Jesus the way that he does, specifically with the honorific of good teacher. In Jewish written records, and I thought this was surprising, in all of Jewish written records, as far as I could find, not that I searched every single one of them, but this is as far as I understand it, this kind of honorific seems to be not just rare, but unique. As far as I understand from others who have done the legwork in all of Jewish religious literature, not most of it, all of it. There's no rabbi, no teacher that is ever called good. A lot of positive things said about them, of course, but that specific word, good, never used of them. Of course, in our day and time, we use the word good for just about anything that, that meets with your approval. You tell your son, good throw, good job cleaning up your room, good job finishing your plate, these french fries taste good, all that kind of stuff. But within Jewish religious circles and among rabbis and uh, other spiritual leaders, that term good for them was specifically re uh, reserved, excuse me, for God and his law only. So you might think of it some kind of practical example. It is perfectly fine to revere a person. It is perfectly fine to revere a preacher. Because that word just means to feel deep respect for somebody. No problem revering someone. But we kind of make a point of never referring to preachers as reverend. Uh, because it just kind of crosses the, the boundary for what we are comfortable with when it comes to that sort of term and using that sort of respect. It's that sort of thing for them. No harm in using the word good, but they had reserved it for a specific usage of God and his law alone. It's the same sort of thing for, for ancient Jews in this word, good. So in religious discussion, that, that term of approval is exclusively, exclusively reserved for their maker. So what is this man doing then? 
Is he out of line? Uh, is he perhaps, as, as some versions refer to him, especially in the, the headings above the text, maybe your version does this, a young man, and he is stepping outside of proper cultural bounds? Is he engaging in some kind of uh, empty flattery? Or perhaps is it that this man has become persuaded of a monumental truth that is currently lost on most of his fellow Hebrews, that Jesus is not just some rabbi, but he is the long-awaited Messiah, the rabbi of rabbis, you might say. Whichever interpretation is actually correct, Jesus' response is, is intriguing. In verse 18, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And however you want to take his meaning, his comment is, is, of course, not a denial of his deity. He makes that claim quite clear elsewhere that he absolutely claims to be the son of God on par with God. The I am just as much as Jehovah is. So perhaps it is that what Jesus is doing is what he does best, getting to the heart of the issue. Jesus knows how to say just the right thing to motivate the response that he's looking for. And perhaps it is that he wants to provide this wealthy ruler with the opportunity to confess more plainly the faith he has in Jesus, if that's the explanation behind his, his choice of words. So yes, no one is good except God, but you, teacher, are God. Whatever the reason for it, that confession never comes. Um, indicating either another point to Jesus' question or perhaps the, the limit to the understanding of this man. But either way, what Christ's statement does for us is it tells us something about God that we need to consider if we have a desire to know him as closely as he wishes to know us. God is good. That's what I want to talk about this week. Um, I don't know if you're happy over the events of this week or concerned over the events of this week, but either way, I believe we can all heartily agree that whether this was an election week or not, God is good. He is still good. He will always be good. And understanding the way that the term was used by Jesus contemporaries in this context here of, of Mark 10, um, understanding that God is the only one who can rightfully be called good at least in the way that they reserved that term, thinking of it in the fullest sense of the word. So the, the Greek and Hebrew words for our English word carry much of the same connotations. There's no mysteries there, no specificities there that, that we're lacking, really. Um, good then, good now refers to, for example, what is excellent in its character or its constitution, that is its makeup, and beneficial or useful in its effect. What is excellent, both in character and constitution, and beneficial or useful in its effect. In addition to that first idea, the, uh, the definition expands also into what is pleasant, agreeable, excellent, valuable, benevolent, and kind. So you've got a couple of different ideas with that word good. Um, two related but separate ideas that begin to show themselves as we consider these words as they describe God's goodness. In Psalm 119, verse 68, you actually come across both of those ideas in one verse. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, you are good and you do good. 
So for starters, God is good. God himself is good. The God of the Bible is everything that a God should be. We're familiar with with, um, ancient paganism and their varieties of deities that sometimes ran the spectrum between being almost, you know, 100% God and then all the way down into kind of part God, part man, and then kind of mostly man. Some of them had their weaknesses, um, areas in which they they needed mankind to do this or that for them. The God of the Bible is, is nothing of that sort. He is the ideal. More than that, he is the standard by which perfection itself is measured. He's without defect. He's without contradiction. And there's nothing that could be added to his his composition, his nature, as that definition refers to it with the word composition. Nothing that could be removed from it that would improve upon him. So to the nth degree, God is excellent. He possesses every quality you might desire. He is priceless. He is good. But in addition to God being good, he is good. In addition to that, God is the the quintessential, excuse me, good being, good person, good entity. He's the one by whom goodness is actually defined because he's the source of all good. And being so good by his very nature leads him to do good for others. So it's in God's nature to be good as much as anything can be in anyone. He is merciful, generous, demonstrative, and he wants us, at least in the eternal eternal sense of the word, to be happy. Now that doesn't always involve the temporal sense of that idea of happiness, and we'll talk more about that here in a little while. But, as we kind of talked about in the the talk before the table, even here on earth, we get great benefit from from being in a relationship with God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. So all that's how the Jews treated the word good in this kind of a context. It's why they reserved it exclusively for God. The reason Jesus says no one is good except God alone is, is because there is no other being that can compare to the infinite goodness of God. In the same, same way they showed respect and reverence for the, the, the name of God, they showed respect and reverence for this particular attribute. There's not a single bit of good that exists outside of God, that did not find its source in God, including whatever goodness we may be blessed to possess. So God is good to such an extent that goodness doesn't define God. It is the other way around. Goodness finds its definition in his nature. And with that said, if everything that God does is good and all of his acts are an outflowing of that goodness, may I suggest to you that this quality, his essential goodness, embraces or envelops all his other qualities. Uh, There is biblical evidence for this. God promises Moses that he's going to make all his goodness pass before him in Exodus 33 and verse 19. And when God does pass before him in the next chapter, talks about how he has revealed to him his compassion, his graciousness, his long suffering, his mercy, his truth, his justice, his forgiveness. You consider those passages together and all of those attributes are summed up in his goodness. 
I think we can appreciate um, easily enough the, the infinite nature of God's goodness in, in many of his, his characters or um, characteristics. When the goodness of God leads even the creator of, of the universe to give of himself fully and sacrificially, we call that love. When his goodness causes him to show favor that we've in no way deserved, we call that grace. When his goodness extends and soothes us, soothes us when we are in distress, we use the word mercy. When his goodness shows itself in, in patience towards those who deserve punishment, when justice would be what is fit for them, we call that manifestation of his goodness long-suffering. When his goodness reveals to us how things are, it's called truth. And when his goodness bears the offense of our sin and pays the price for us, the goodness of God results in his forgiveness. Kind of makes sense why they might reserve that word for God alone, doesn't it? I'm not saying if you go out and you have lunch and say, boy, this sandwich is good, that you're sinning um, by any means whatsoever. But you can't understand where they would come from, can't you? Where they'd take that word and say, no, we're going to save that one. That one is special. That one is used for God only. And when the Bible says that God is good, it is referring to so much. So as I said, it's not hard to, to see God's goodness expressed in a variety of different ways in Scripture. We see God's goodness in, in all that he is and all that he does. And I would point to you just as few specific expressions of the goodness of God that the Bible talks about. And the first and most obvious one of those is creation. So seven times in the book of Genesis, God sums up the work he's done by calling it good. And finally concludes that everything he's made in the world's first week was very good. Psalm 19 says that even something as relatable as the beautiful days we've been enjoying today and, and yesterday and for a while now, um, declare the glory of God and his handiwork. There's a, a hymn I used to hear. Um, we used to sing it, especially back in, in college. Um, never really one of my favorites. So if you like this song, my apologies. But it has some lyrics even though I don't much like the song, the lyrics are quite true when they're appreciated, especially in the light of the discussion that we're having this morning. Maybe you know this song. It says, blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven are what I can see when my Lord is living in me. When I am um, living faithfully before my God, I'm not blinded to the grandeur of his creation and the glory of him that it shows me. Goes on to say, green grass and flowers all blooming in springtime are works of the master I live for each day. That song is not exactly my cup of tea, but that kind of particular thought. Have you looked around at the beauty of the fall colors that God has created and, and, and been at all at what he could do? It's that same kind of idea. Or I'm already anxious for the, the spring that is to come because the road I drive to get here, the houses, they just fill their yards with flowers. I can't wait to see that again. The song says, tall mountains, green valleys, the beauty that surrounds me all make me aware of the one who made it all. Or as Psalm 33 and verse 5 in the King James Versions says, the earth is 
full of the goodness of the Lord. And then there is what is remarkably referred to as God's greatest creation. Us. He's made us with eyes to see that beauty, ears to hear all the sounds, a nose to stop and smell his roses, taste buds to quite literally taste and see that the Lord is good and all the food that he's provided for us. He's given us a sense of touch to help communicate love to someone who is precious to us and to him and a mind to endeavor to comprehend the meaning of it all. And that's just to name a few evidences of the goodness of God. Lamentations 3 verse 22 says his mercies never come to an end. And if you've read that book, a book called Lamentations, you know that that's a a statement made in the midst of a chapter that is unique to the rest of the book. Because the rest of the book is lamenting. But even in the midst of the great reason that Jeremiah had for lamenting the death and destruction that's been all around him, he still declares his mercies never come to an end. We'll come back to that in a minute. But to have a day like today, it's beautiful out to love and be loved by family and friends, including brethren in Christ. To have perhaps the satisfaction of a productive uh, week of labor, as I hope you've enjoyed this past week and will enjoy in this new work week. Uh, Maybe you spent some time enjoying the exhilaration of of physical exercise and recreation. It's a blessing some of us would do better to appreciate a little bit more. The simple refreshment of a good night's sleep. The provision for our daily needs, our daily bread. And just so many other things that enrich our lives to such an extent it seems almost impossible to avoid taking a portion of them for granted. There's just so many of them. His blessings and the displays of his goodness are beyond our ability to count. But then if you're a believer in him, that list just expands to bursting. So you take all of the the general benefits that God has bestowed on on all of mankind as he makes the sun rise on the evil as well as the good. Matthew 5 says and sends the rain on the unrighteous as well as on the righteous. You take those general blessings, but then also consider that the believer has so many additional good things to be thankful for. We have the word of God. Which is described as good in Hebrews 6 and verse 5. We can know and do the will of God, which is called good in Romans 12 and verse 2. We have the assurance that our good God will work out every detail in our life together for the ultimate good. Romans 8 and verse 28 says. And that's just a a small uh, sampling of, of why the expressions of God's goodness to his children are endless. Psalm 31 verse 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In Psalm 84 and verse 11, Psalmist says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. There was a song we thought about trying to sing this morning. Um, It's a bit of a tricky song if you've not 
very well familiar with it. It's a hymn that we sing from time to time, based actually off of an old Jewish poem that says, let's see if you know these words. Could we with ink the ocean fill? You know this song? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Everyone knows that song, right? At least has heard those lines before. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? And every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. If you had all the material the earth could hold, and all the hands writing as much as they could to write in the love of God above, it just couldn't be done even still. And honestly, that's not a wasted exaggeration. That's not just nice words to hear and say. The expressions of God's goodness to his children are just simply endless. And they certainly seem that way in this life, though since this life is finite, God's blessings in this earth will also be finite, even though they're infinite from our ability to to grasp them. But the expressions of God's goodness to his children will be endless when the eternal life we talked about in our Lord's Supper talk, um, when that is realized. So with all of the goodness of God that, that we can see, perhaps it's just incredulous to us when we learn not everybody agrees that God is good. And when you consider that his goodness is essentially the first attribute of God that was attacked in human history, maybe it's not so much of a surprise that his goodness is still called into question even in our time. When Satan meets Eve in the garden, the implication of his statement is clear. God's less than good because he's denied you something that you ought to be able to have. And kind of picking up where the devil left off, men have just been challenging the goodness of God ever since. I suppose if there's any relatable way in which we might struggle with the goodness of God, it might be when we consider the so-called problem of evil. Maybe you've heard it put the way it classically is, that how can a good God allow evil to exist in this world? How can he permit disease and pain and suffering and poverty and hunger and prejudice and greed and exploitation and, and pandemics and riots and crime and violence and war and bloodshed and catastrophe and destruction, just all that kind of stuff? And those who would seek to tear down God with this argument say either he's not very good or he doesn't have the power to stop this. They say he can't be both or else this evil wouldn't exist. Maybe it isn't for you, but it is difficult for me to understand how the various human tragedies I am aware of, and even the ones I've witnessed face to face, could possibly be allowed to go on. Um, And odds are, I'm just never going to understand it. I know that God tells me his ways are higher than my ways, Isaiah 55, for example. And I don't expect to understand everything. Um... But sometimes it's still hard to see what some folks go through. Um, I know that God, in his superior understanding, created mankind with volition, with will, the ability to choose good or evil. The first man chose evil of his own will, and sins affected all of God's creation through its consequences. 
all the heartache, all the suffering in this world today are the, the, the direct result of that choice. The consequences of living in a world that has been marred and affected by sin. And, and that, of course, even though it was the first, wasn't going to be the last sinful decision that was ever made. There's been many, many, many more since. And suffering in this earth has only intensified by repeated sinful choices. We see suffering in our own life with some of the sinful decisions that we make. Or the ones that are made by individuals and, and nations around us. We might suffer when the drug addict decides that he needs to secure some money for his next fix. And so he breaks into your home and steals something from you. We may suffer when the, the leaders of a nation decide to enlarge their territory and maybe conquer uh, a country that cannot defend itself. Or when they promote something that is immoral. Um, there's just so many different ways in which sin can lead to suffering. The, the drunk driver, for example. And, and on and on and on you go. And from here on out, the only way that we're ever going to remove all the suffering from this world would be to deny everyone their freedom to choose for themselves. Otherwise, it's just always going to be a present factor. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how God knew before he created man that he was going to need to do something to redeem mankind. He knew we would choose evil, but he also knew that creating us was one of the best ways, if not the best way, to demonstrate the goodness of his person. To show who he really is. To bring glory to himself. So he has the power to overrule, to appropriate, to defeat the consequences of, of our sin and accomplish that purpose. He promises, in fact, to overrule all things for good. We know, Romans 8 verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But maybe that is a bit more difficult to buy into during times of real trial, even for true Christians. If, if God is so good, why did he let my child get sick and experience what they did and be lost to me? If God is so good, why did I lose my job this year? And go through all the scares of whether or not I was going to provide, be able to provide for my family. While there's also the fear of illness and, and riots and division and all that kind of stuff going on. If God is so good, why did, uh, I don't know if you heard the story of the, 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 the family. Um, the, the godly family, I think in Tennessee it was. Um, a mother and a father and I believe one child. Tornado went through the area, took the whole house down and the whole family with it. Why would he allow that to happen? Why would he allow me to lose my savings in my retirement and now to live in, in fear because of this? Why is this taking place? As I said, maybe you're pleased with the direction of the election this week. Maybe you aren't. Why would God allow that? Why did God allow the last one or any of the ones before if they didn't go the way you thought they should go? Why does God allow these things to happen? In part, the cause of our dilemma is a failure to understand at times what is truly good for us. Um, I can have a notion of what I think is, is ultimately the best for me in a particular situation. And, and usually that lines up with things going a bit more smoothly for me. Um, but God alone is omniscient. 
And he's the one who knows that the choices I may make in my human wisdom with the weakness of my, of my uh, or excuse me, my weakness for sin, that, that the choices I wish to make, that I wish would happen, aren't going to make me happy in the end. But then also, of course, it is, it is God who understands what the effects of some of that, that suffering can have. Um, so our gods, our good God's good goal is for us to be made like his son. And maybe too often we separate verse 28 of Romans 8 from the promise of verse 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the highest good that you and I can attain is conformity to the example of humanity that Jesus presented to us. That will bring happiness. And we can be growing toward that goal daily. But as Jesus' life also shows us, that does not mean that suffering is going to be removed from us. It doesn't mean we're going to be exempt. If Jesus Christ himself had something to learn from suffering, then so do we as well. Suffering has its place. If the greatest moment of Jesus' life here on this earth was when he willingly walked to the cross in obedience to God and the service of others, then perhaps it is our suffering when we can especially get to know God and grow in the likeness of his son. As we've seen in our consideration of the book of Acts and everything that Paul is going through, Paul was thankful for the sufferings that God put him through. Not that he just enjoyed it, but because it allowed him to know not only something of what his Savior had been through, but to know more clearly what it was like to serve God the way that Christ did. I wonder if there's anything that can remind us uh, of, of what it is to grow in the likeness of his son more effectively than pain and suffering. There are, of course, some that allow the pain and suffering they endure to diminish their faith. But you imagine what it would be like if we lived without any suffering whatsoever, without any kind of earthly consequence. Might it be a little bit difficult for us to imagine the idea of a consequence at all? To just slowly kind of drift off into to apathy and live our lives apart from him. And consequently, never know the happiness that we seek and that he would have for us. Suffering doesn't need to cast doubt on the goodness of God. It demonstrates it. So the psalmist said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, which are better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces than all the wealth and that I could wish for. It does sometimes lead us to doubt. Um, the suffering that we experience, and maybe particularly the suffering that you witness. Um, I've seen some cases of, and I'm sure you have too, of sin ripping apart a family. I've seen sin live to the, or sin lead to the abuse of children, and sometimes the continued abuse of them. And I got to say, if there's any particular kind of evil that continues in this world and makes me wonder, God, why don't you stop this? It is that. But I have got to remember how much of the goodness of God he has shown me proof of. 
And yes, I'm not going to completely understand why. I just, I know I'm not going to. I have no idea why. It doesn't make any sense to me. And you see the psalmist sometimes pray to God and say, I don't understand why you're doing things the way that you're doing. But ultimately they come down to the, but I know you are God. And I know better enough to, to, to trust you. And when we become aware of God's goodness, when we see the evidence of it both in Scripture and in this life, we certainly ought to respond with that kind of trust. But there are other ways we ought to respond. Um, You see the proper kind of response to the goodness of God and the exiles who make their way back to the promised land after being in Babylonian captivity. They have a goal of rebuilding the temple of God and the progress is slow. But in the second year, they restore the foundation completely. They're back in the land. Their temple is underway. And in Ezra 3 and verse 11, the scripture says they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. This is a people who just came out of captivity and all the horrors that would involve. And his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. God's goodness prompted songs of praise and thanksgiving. A mindset for that that was then expressed in songs of adoration. It's exactly what it ought to do for us. I hope that's what it did for us this morning. Jared was kind enough to pick songs that would go along with the theme of this week's, uh, this, this morning's lesson. Psalm 106 verse 1 amongst many other passages like it says, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. That word praise comes from a root that means to be boastful. So when you and I praise God, we are boasting in the good things He's done. Not necessarily because He's done them for us, but because they demonstrate who He is. Which is to say, people who know a good God have cause to brag about it, if you will. And tell other people about Him. So praise becomes something of a way of life for them. Thanksgiving, too. It's easier said than done for that to be a part of your life with the presence of a lot of bad habits, maybe. We talked uh, in the invitation this week about taking a few moments at the start of each day to pray to God and orient yourself on things eternal. If we'll take a few moments each day to do nothing but thank God for some of the good things that he's done. Imagine how difficult it becomes for us to perhaps get bogged down and depressed and focus intently on on some of those things as we do that don't warrant that effect on us. So may I suggest this week, throughout this week, that we try to take a moment and focus on him. And see how that doesn't brighten the entire composition of your life. If you are worried about the events of this past week and what may be coming ahead, take a moment and see if that focus on eternity and mindfulness of the immense goodness that God has done since creation on down and the goodness that is to come doesn't bring you peace. Learning to practice gratitude can absolutely um, require discipline at first. But before long, it just becomes a part of your day that you can't do without. And there's no better way to appreciate living godly than to remind yourself of everything that he is and, and, how he, and, and, and everything that he does. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, God is so good. If you have not yet discovered it, 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and witness how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And perhaps if you want a little bit more practical application, don't go through this exercise of reminding yourself of God's goodness alone. If you have the opportunity, sit down with someone. Sit down with your family and rehearse some of the good things that God has done for you throughout the years through this year. I understand where some of the online posts are coming from when it's like 2020. Of course, you know, some other negative thing happens. That's this year. Um, Just being ready for 2021 to turn around, all that stuff. I get where some of that's coming from. But even a year like this year is filled with more blessings than we can count and more reasons to be thankful than we're able to, to wrap our minds around. If you're presently facing some trial, however minuscule or immense it may be, think of some of the good things that God could teach you through that, that God could do for you through that. I know we're running a bit long, but if I may make one point to you, I know a lot of you know the the Smelser family. I think it was just this past week that the anniversary of Adam Smelser's um, drowning uh, came about again. That is suffering I can't talk about or it's going to get to me because I think of my boys and there you go. But I will tell you, I don't have an example I can refer to that more vividly displayed to me what eternal hope means than the way that that family and the friends of Adam Smelser conducted themselves in the days, weeks, and even years to come. The hope that they not only clung to for their sake, but told everybody about from the the day that... um, he was recovered and they realized that he had passed um, to his funeral and beyond and even to this week as they were posting uh, memories of him and and spiritual things about him and and about life and eternal life. Um, That suffering I can't imagine. And I know I also can't wrap my mind around the immense good they have done for the people of God through the suffering that they endured. That they turned even that to God's glory. So I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're having a good week. Maybe you're having a mildly rough one. Maybe you feel like you're peering through uh, darkness as, as, as deep as what was on the night that Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever you're enduring right now, God is good. And you can do good for our good God in spite of whatever you may be enduring right now. If you're ready to do the will of the Father this morning, to experience the goodness of God for yourself, we would invite you to come to him in obedience this morning. If you're not a Christian and you'd like to study more about that, we would love to sit down with you, Skype with you, whatever you're comfortable with during these times, and study the Bible together about how you can be pleasing to the Lord. If you have been studying your Bible and you're ready to repent of your sins and confess your faith in him and be immersed into his blood for the forgiveness of those sins, we would love to invite you to do that good thing this morning. Come make the good confession. Let's see you become a child of our good God this day. If we can help you in any way to do good for our good Lord, won't you let us know while we stand and sing?